I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. Welcome back to Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Fitting Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever it takes us. It is our hope through these conversations that we provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life. In today's podcast, it is a special one. We are sitting down with two of my oldest friends and that have been here since the beginning of this podcast. We are joined by Joe Jakowski and Jordan Chris. The reason they're on the podcast is to celebrate the completion of Joe's thesis. As returning listeners to the podcast, you'll be familiar that Joe's been working on his thesis for the last year. Joe's thesis is The Manifestation of Meaning, a thesis on meaning-making and venerance. In this conversation, we get to unpack all of the research Joe's been working on to be able to put into the thesis, and it's a really interesting one. You'll hear, for both me and Jordan, it's a really interesting topic. And not only that, but to just have a podcast or platform such as this that allows my friend to be able to share the things that he's been pouring himself into the last year and to give his thesis a home post-graduation so that it can exist outside of the academic world is a really special thing for me. And so this is co-releasing with the thesis. So you can go read it on the website and you'll be able to listen to this long form podcast. That's hopefully a little bit more accessible and not as much in the weeds in the technical sense as the actual thesis itself. But I highly recommend you both listen to this and read the thesis. If you're really interested in this space of meaning making because Joe pulls on a lot of threads from experts, both current and past. So with that, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Joe Jakowski and Jordan Chris. It off. Boom. How to start this. So I context is probably necessary. So absolutely. About a year ago, I started working on a thesis and a thesis is basically a long research project. It's a year long. You do your, you conduct your own research. In this case, it was honors. So it's like I, at the University of Michigan, in order to get honors, you have to actually do a thesis. Not that you have getting you doing a thesis gets you honors because there are people that don't have honors that do theses. Mm. But for honors, I did a thesis. Gotcha. Yeah. I worked with Professor Susan Gelman, who's a developmental psychologist, really renowned in the field. I was incredibly lucky to be able to do that and work with her and it went great. And she was very helpful and encouraging, especially along the lines that of what I was interested in because I wanted to do work on meaning and I've done a lot of reading on meaning in the past. And she kind of enabled me to like 
actually work on it yeah. <laughs> and to do what I wanted to do instead of just follow the sort of orthodoxy, the whole thing. So I'm going to try to run through this and hit all the big points uh, and provide a little context, provide some points of contact with other research, and then we'll eventually get to my research. But we can meander. Yeah. We don't have to stick to the script. Cool. Sweet. And run around, talk about whatever comes up. Right. I don't mind uh, going Yo, on a tangent. Let's, uh, let's pause real quick because Nick over here is calling us out already. <laughs> Nick, it's an illusion. <laughs> it's an optical. It's, it's just like the Lord of the Rings when the people that look really small are, you know, really far away. That's yeah. what it is. Totally. Does optical, it have yeah. to be six? Is that social distancing? Oh, that's like I'm over it. <laughs> like, Jesus, I can go get my face mask if you want. <laughs> good to go. Like, no, 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 good to go. Yeah, it was something great. Jeez. All right. So to start, you, I, it's, it's. Kind of, I want to get you in the headspace because I mean, you have to kind of think of people as uh, tabula rasa or blank slates, right? We're not, but we're gonna we're gonna start from this place. Otherwise, it gets re- I just get dragged into the past. I can explain why this even exists. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about meaning, but to understand what a meaning framework is or global meaning is, you have to understand its constituent elements, how it emerges. So start with the blank slate. Say that people don't have any views, any values, any goals when they come out and they come into being, right? So what should you do? What do you do? Well, there's a philosopher named... Jean-Paul Sartre, who was an existentialist, who started from this point, and he said, people are blank slates, and they don't have any goals or values. Religion doesn't play a role. There's no, you don't have some essential element to your being that's provided you from God. You just are, and whatever it is that you are is defined by the actions that you take. So you define a person by what they actually do. So if I drink this beer, oh, delicious, then I am a person who drinks beer. That's how that's how you decide what your essence. What you do is is informed by, like who you are. Sorry, is informed by what you do. Exactly, and it, it the the opposing view would have been before the existentialists, generally, would have been that your essence is provided for you to you from God before birth, and then you fulfill that. Right, right. You have like a destiny mm. that's been given to you. So it's Be theological determinism. Yeah, okay. sort of. So it's not in Sartre's view, there's no God, and what your what defines your essence or defines you as a human being is what it is that you do. But what actions you should take, he doesn't even really say exactly. He doesn't say should. He's just descriptive. So if I do any action, then I'm actually choosing that action as a consequence, or I'm choosing that action over something else. We're limited inherently. We can't do all things at once. I can't drink this beer and go on a roller coaster or do whatever all at the same time at once. Right. Maybe I could go on a roller coaster with a beer. I don't know. That'd be fun. <laughs> be a mess. <laughs> That's what I got out of that. It sounds messy. Whatever. But you're, you're choosing one thing over another, right? So it's in choosing something over another, you're indicating what it is that you value. There's not some values that exist because of God. It's that what it is you value is yeah. indicated by what it is that you're choosing over another thing. I value this beer right now more than I value a glass of water. I mean, actually, to push back on the current situation, we value doing this more than we value social distancing. 
<laughs> I don't care. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I mean, but that's right. That that would be right. Exactly. That would indicate the same thing, right? So Sartre would say that's exactly right. He's like, what you value is whatever it is that you're getting out of this podcast. I Maybe mean, it's just podcasting. You could just right. call it yeah. that. But there's a lot of things tied into podcasting, social interaction. Yes. Uh, maybe things that are important to be human. Right. <laughs> whatever it may be that about the podcast that you value that makes you pick the podcast over something else. Yeah. Over right. playing video games or not just not doing a podcast. Right. And so you value the podcast. That's what you value. That's an indication of your values. Mm -hmm. Now, what Sartre calls values, the psychological literature calls goals. It's basically those things that you're pursuing. So why did they? Why, why is there that weird, not distinction or not clear definition? Yeah. Where why would psychology call you know values and because goals? Because psychology didn't get its terminology from the existentialists. Okay, mm -hmm. they discovered this thing as a phenomenon. Discovered mm. this thing as a phenomenon in psychology and then came up with their own terminology parallel to Sartre. Gotcha. Okay. Right, so the, these psychologists, you could imagine that they could have been that they're using the same ter terminology if there was existentialist psychologists who had gotten this idea from Sartre. Right. And then they would have used his terminology in their work and then it would perpetuate it. Yeah. But they had their, they, it was parallel thinking. So they had their own yeah. definitions. Okay. I'm just trying to, th trying to see where the threads of similar thinking and why don't they have a uniform? Yeah. They've only, and they've system. actually, only, a lot of this is only written, like in 2010. There's oh. a woman at University of Connecticut who I actually talked to in, when I was figuring this whole thing out named Crystal Park who came up with the basic framework. Because mm. there's a whole ton of research on meaning over like 30, 40 years or so, even longer really. I mean, Viktor Frankl was doing it in the 50s. So throughout that whole period of time, and they had all these different de definitions of things. It was totally a mess. It was hard to tell what anyone was talking about because nobody was on the same page. Yeah. And she basically did the hard work of getting all of this research together and reading all of it like crazy and creating a whole framework that seriously influenced this paper mm -hmm. and pretty much and ought to, if it isn't already, influencing all the meaning research that comes after it. So okay. that basically, so it makes these definitions and everybody can stay on the same page. Right. Yeah. So I'm at, I'll actually follow the the stages of meaning making and cool. its process based on the work that she did. Yeah. And just as a note, eventually this will all get posted on the website probably within the next week yeah. easily so that people can peruse the real document and yeah. follow we'll, the resources. We'll put up the thesis. It'll be a downloadable PDF because it's way too long to just post as a yeah. thing. It's like yeah. 40 something pages. I mean, I do that for the transcripts of the podcast, so we could, if you wanted to. It might be easier to do. I, I it doesn't think, matter. We'll talk about it. Whatever. Yeah. So besides the point. We'll figure out the technicalities. <laughs> yeah. But so anything that you choose to do, any goal that you pick or value that you pick is at the consequence of another value or goal. And that indicates what it is that you value, right? So that just says a bunch of things that you value. Now, there's actually a functional way of ordering these things, and this is called action identification theory. So there's this idea. It's like, what should you do once you can do anything? Like, why should I choose a beer over water or other way around? Or why should I come do a podcast over something else? Mm -hmm. Well, Sartre wouldn't give you an answer. <laughs> he just goes, I'm just describing what you're doing. There are no real values, like objective kind of values mm. to rely on. You can just do whatever you want, and that's fine. He said we're condemned to be free, 
which is Ooh. like being condemned to be free is right. like is what happens when you get on Netflix and you don't know what you want to watch. You don't yeah. have an asserted goal, and then you sit there for an hour flipping through everything. Right. It's, <laughs> it's, like, the, it's, a, it's like the paradox of choice from uh, Freakonomics. Right. Hmm. Right. Um, because because it's 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 choice paralysis. Yeah. Because it's a, and Sartre doesn't really address that. He's just kind of like you're fucked. <laughs> That's super interesting. Like, as soon as you said that, I, I jumped to Tolkien. So like all of the races that he wrote, mm-hmm. you know, the elves, their condemnation is that they live forever, and it's or gift. He calls it the gift. So he's like, for elves, their gift was live forever. For humans, it was their gift that they die, mm-hmm. and so then you get like you know the ultimate yeah. dichotomy there, and then it was like somewhere in between for dwarves and hobbits and things like that. So it's like each race has their own way of looking at life because of their certain lifespan. Hmm. Which makes sense. And you can imagine the problems with both. Like with humans, it's, oh my God, we're going to die. I'm never going to get to do everything I want. Yeah. With elves, it would be like, I got all the time in the world. Why should I do anything? Right. <laughs> it's like the conservative, like if you took, like, put it in like political ideology it's like if you live forever then it's more you're more easily to be able to stay in your ways it's like well yeah you just get yeah, bored you know do nothing because you have forever yeah <laughs> i could just why would i even get out of bed you know I, if i could live forever i'd be sitting there and be like i am gonna binge this entire season of whatever yeah why not yeah. <laughs> i have next year plus forever <laughs> I plus or minus forever yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of good shows on right now I've got a whole I can do anything I can work out next century screw it that's interesting so you think in that kind of scenario with that like like take away meaning in that sense because then you have all the time to do everything so yeah. then how yeah. would you yeah. so one of the things they talk about or he I think it will, yeah. he kind of unpacks with like the elves it's that they it's because the world is ever changing. Like even though they don't change or their people don't change, they still see the world changing. So they get like hyper nostalgia for what once was. Hmm. And so it's like, hmm. it's like they, they get tired of the world because they can never, because they are around forever and all they get to experience is nothing but change. Right. Hmm. You know, whereas humans, it's like we're changing with the world and we have a finite experience. And so then, you know, if, if we're experiencing nothing but change, it's like we yearn for unchanging. Right. You know? Stability. So it's like a weird, you know, like each one is yearning for the other's experience to some degree. Right. It's interesting. Right. (laughs) I would say that if you live forever, it would undermine this whole elaborative process. And I can get, I can explain why, but we have to continue on. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. no. This is a great segue. (laughs) Put a pin in that. (laughs) So what happens is like, you can do anything. What do you choose? You choose over something else because you can't do everything. And then because you, so that indicates what you value, but what value should you have over another value? If you have to make that choice. Well, one in or even thinking of a should is becoming a belief system. What you should do is something, I mean, that's even what religious systems are doing. They're telling you what you should do in this, right. in this type of world. But there's actually a functional way to stack these things. So there's a thing called action identification theory. And I can give you an example from a study that they did with this. And it's basically how people order their goals. So they had a bunch oh. of people playing Call of Duty which is great video games. Wow. <laughs> so they had them playing Call of Duty. And what they found was that while they were playing Call of Duty, they were caught in moments where the players would be caught in moments where they had one option or the other. And in this case, it was revive a teammate mm-hmm. or shoot the enemy. Yeah. So which one do you pick? 
Well, it turns out that you by shooting the enemy, that will help you revive your teammate. But reviving your teammate isn't going to shoot the enemy. So you see how you can get to reviving the teammate through shooting like, the enemy? Like a goal yeah. hierarchy. You're right. Creating. You form a hierarchy of goals. Mm-hmm. So what that allows you to do is have your cake and eat it too. Right. You can accomplish both goals, but right. you can't do them in any order. Yeah. You have to do them in a specific order, and that's what allows you to do it. And this is – and you may say, oh, well, it's a video game. Who knows? But in the Marine Corps, there's actually – this exact thing applies in real combat. If, so, if one of your – if a fellow Marine is down in combat, yeah. you don't run out run out and get him. Yeah. That's actually a really bad idea because the only place you know for sure that you can get shot is where that dude just got shot. Yeah. Oh, right. That's like mm-hmm. the highest – it's like if you're looking at like probability theory. Right. It's like, well, that's been proven to – like if we're looking – The most likely places get shot. where I can get shot. Well, we know I can get shot there. <laughs> you have evidence. <laughs> right. It's like right there, immediate evidence. But yeah. even that aside, it's – what the strategy is is that you – Keep fighting the enemy until you push up past the person who's been shot, and then you drag them back and help them. Because so you're, now you're pushing past the threat zone, basically, so yeah. that the probability of getting shot is lower, lower and lower and lower mm-hmm. as you advance. Yeah, and you're shooting the enemy in order to help your friend. Right. Right. So in real life, the same ordering of goals plays out. Yeah. So, but what's really really important here is a little thing that they noticed, which was that though this is called abstraction right yeah. so you're abstracting a rule out of this situation or, or taking one value and putting it above another one yeah. right that process of abstraction those people who thought more abstractly while playing the video game performed better Whoa. right so there's there's an actual functional reason why you should order goals in a certain way mm-hmm. it's not just some arbitrary religious system like imposing a bunch of rules on you it's instead it's Here's a functional way of behaving in the world. If you want to have your cake and eat it too, this is how you got to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, honestly, I do this. Like, I've noticed myself, and and when you watch esports, they do this kind of stuff. So for games that you can play at really high levels that are esport oriented, a lot of players who get into those games, they suck really early on because there's so much micro, like, positioning, like, little things you have to pick up on, and the only mm-hmm. way to learn those things is by playing enough. You know, like if we're going to use the old idea of the 10,000 hour rule, it's it's similar to that where you have to just understand like certain things. Like even if you see an enemy that say they're like really close and all you got to do is hit them like one more time and they're going to die. The last thing you should do is go chase that person. And in gaming, it's called seeing red. Mm-hmm. So for unskilled players who do this often is they see red and then they put themselves in, an, in a risky situation that usually winds up getting them killed. That's mm-hmm. really that's really cool. You see that in fight like fighting sports yes, a lot. Exactly. Where like, you know, someone gets like hurt, you know, sook, and they're like, man, another person just goes and like loses all technique. And then exactly. They get, and then they, they get, get dropped. Dropped by like, that one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or like an arm bar out of nowhere. The that's momentum a tactical base. retreat in in military, like large scale what do you would you call it? Large scale like strategic moves. It's like you feign a weakness, mm-hmm. you push back and retreat, they move in. Your flanks go out the side, bang, yeah. surrounded, they're yeah. done. Yeah. Right? It's, it's intentional. It's tactical retreating. You're drawing them. Yeah. Come on. I was just actually listening to an audiobook about mental models about, like, velocity. So the analogy he drew from, like, we all know velocity is, like, speed at which you're going right. to a place. Right? Mm-hmm. And so he drew an analogy about how Napoleon used velocity. And so Napoleon used velocity in the sense that if he could drive his army to get to places quicker than the enemy, they couldn't react as fast. And so there he would catch them unaware. You know, and doing things like that. So it's like if you, you know, are manipulating the battlefield in that sense where it's like if you can get to point A to point B, 
quicker than the enemy and the enemy could be whatever you call it right, right. like competition in business or a race or mm. a sport game right <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is like if you get more turnarounds then you're you know you have more velocity on the ball right to some degree hmm. cool right like it's really cool like to think about like applying these these like physics terms in like real life settings because i'm like wait hold on that's so true yeah it's just overlaying that it gives you a lot more like you can like plug those into situations you wouldn't think of otherwise. Cool. So uh, you, at this point it's like, here's all these things about ordering goals and here's, they have some function to them and you might think, okay, well, if I think of systems that give me meaning, well, religious systems are a form of that. Mm-hmm. So how does this, how does this become a religious system? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, these are the building blocks for what's called global meaning, which is something like worldview. Like humanity, like how do humans view? It's individualistic okay. in that you have a global meaning oh, okay. and that's your view of the world. Yeah. It's informed by all your goals. It's actually informed by your beliefs, your intrinsic and extrinsic goals. And intrinsic goals are those things that are more personal to you. You're not going to achieve them by going on the world. Exactly. It's not like where in contrast, extrinsic goals, extrinsic goals would be like getting a promotion at work. Got it. Yeah. So things things that like are influenced by the outcome world, like getting a certain job or something. It's, It's something that you need to change almost about the world outside of yourself. Yeah. Or the conditions that you're in, in that world where intrinsic is something like, things do you care about with yourself? Like I want to be a nicer person. That's yeah. intrinsic, right? That, does, that's me. I'm doing. Does this allow for a lot of overlap though? Cause I feel like there's yeah. some, okay. Yeah, it does. And in fact, they're, they're all correlated with each other. Okay. So, and even beliefs too. In fact, I should touch on beliefs. Why do beliefs play into this? If we're just talking about goals. Well, for oh, one, yeah, we should definitely define that too. Cause I feel like when you're talking like goals, meaning, and beliefs, I would say, yeah. like that's really convoluted. Right. So where, where do we get to beliefs <laughs> in the stacking of goals? That, yeah. That happens. Well, one, anything that you act upon is actually a belief about what you're going to, what you should value. Because if I'm saying I'm going to drink this beer again, right? Mm -hmm. I'm asserting that my belief is that that is worth more than the other things that I could do. Gotcha. Right. So the beliefs and goals are inexorably tied. You can't piece them apart. So when you look at, questionnaires about meaning in life that contain these three categories, those three categories and even their violation. So they're when they get messed with are all, they all play together because they're all stuck. They're all correlated. There's movement in the joints. So you might have a different impact. Like if, if something, let's say I'll give you, I'll go right to meaning violation. So if you're, if a personal relationship Mm -hmm. falls apart, You've been dating for two years and the whole thing collapses. Yeah. Well, that'll violate your intrinsic goals, but it'll have, it'll ripple out into beliefs and extrinsic goals. Yeah. But it'll affect intrinsic more. And if you, if somebody that you're close to passes away, that will affect your beliefs more than intrinsic or extrinsic, right? Gotcha. Same as like, uh, I guess an example for extrinsic would probably be getting laid off. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they all affect each other because they're all connected, but they're not the same thing. There's a qualitative distinction. So all these things are tied up. And a whole a belief system is a system of looking at all potential goals, which goals you can get to through others, which ones are the more su- ought be superordinate to the other ones. Mm-hmm. And then you can act in the world. Yeah. And in fact, having meaning in life 
So a, a well-established global meaning system shows, let's see, a decreased anxiety, decreased depression, a whole bunch of other really positive benefits. Yeah. And and it also and part of why it's decreased anxiety is because you don't have that sleep or that 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 choice paralysis. You you don't have to make you don't have to weigh everything anymore. You've already made up in your mind on what's the most valuable. So you just pick the thing that is in that is in service of that thing you've decided is most valuable. So one of the things that I would bring up here is, so a lot of people feel like on a weekly to weekly burst of anxiety. Usually it's on Sundays, ironically. Hmm. So Sundays, it's kind of termed the Sunday scaries. So people who, who really don't like their jobs or people who wind up ruminating on the week ahead because Sunday is like, oh no, they start thinking about what they have to deal with in the next week ahead. And so Sunday winds up becoming the day that they're, Anxious. They're really, really anxious, and they wind up not sleeping well, and then that mm. carries over into the Monday. That's which... why everyone hates. Interesting. That's fucking cool. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, I, if I wanted to put that in the context of meaning, right? Then it right. would be something like, I don't know. Maybe even your job is antithetical to your belief system. Like you don't value your job. Yeah. You actually don't see why you have to do this, other than like some low order value of I need to make money. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Or or you just have a bad boss. So some sort of cultural thing within the working environment that makes it a stressful environment to operate in. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Here's something that I should really touch on. So what I think is happening with so when we think about values as modern people, you don't really think of it as a goal, right? Yeah. Like a goal is like going to Walmart and buying some food for something, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a goal, I can go accomplish that or to join a sports team or something. They're kind of whatever. What we think of, and the reason why I, but we think of values as something like being kind or mm-hmm. generous or I value honesty, yeah. right? And these are more kind of abstract. Right. Well, they're abstract for a reason. And what it is, I think, is that is that a normal goal like a low order one, a subordinate one can only be accomplished in a very specific context. Like if my goal is to change a tire, well, I can't do that in many other situations. (laughs) (laughs) I can basically just change a tire when I'm changing a tire. That's the only time I could do that. (laughs) I can't be, I'm going to watch this T I'm going to watch a show on Netflix and my tire will be changed. It's like, that makes no sense at all. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's ridiculous. Maybe you could watch a video on Netflix that tells you how to change a tire Mm -hmm. in pursuit of changing a tire. Right. Then you're bang, you're ordering things and getting towards it, but it doesn't apply to much else. But being generous, for example, can apply to a whole bunch of situations. So the goal of being generous can apply to, I don't know, living with your friends or uh, cleaning the house or changing somebody else's tire or whatever. It's like, here's something that we've, here's a goal that we've abstracted out that we can pursue under a whole series of contexts with a whole bunch of other subordinate goals that can be in service of that one particular one. Yeah. So like the general goals, like our general values that we think of as modern people are just abstracted goals that can be applied to a whole bunch of other subordinate goals and actions that constitute those. And then that becomes a whole belief system because then you can order those values. And then I think that really what's happening is the highest, the ultimate superordinate goal is what defines all subordinate goals all the way down to your immediate actions. Okay. It's like whatever. It's like a bedrock thing. Like what's the foundation of. It's like it snaps everything into place. Yeah. It's like, okay, so if my goal. Hmm. That's really hard. (laughs) You can see this play out in philosophers. Okay. Like in psychologists, like Freud seemed to think that sex was like the highest, the ultimate super. Yeah. Because everything he talked about was framed around. Right. And then he started saying that everybody's, then he had to, where he went wrong is that he, because he thought that that was the highest super goal. 
and assumed that everybody else was already thinking that way. He started just assuming that everybody's actions were in pursuit of that goal Mm -hmm. and then reading sex into everything Mm -hmm. so that every, whether it was about sex or not, since he had already made up his mind that it was sex, Mm -hmm. he had to justify that belief by projecting it on to a whole bunch of different people. Right. But that's you can see this in a whole bunch. I mean, Foucault, Power. Right. Let's see. I feel like that's a lot of Joshua philosophy. Mill, it's pleasure. everyone kind of picking a, a thing that they value the most and trying to build a, a framework around it as, think, as a way the world right. operates. I think that's right. I, I think that, I mean, Nietzsche said that that a philosophy was the unconscious admission of the philosopher. Ah, Something like that. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I, that's an interesting one. But I think that's what, I think is right. Quick sidebar. Courtney says hi. Hi, hi. Courtney. Hi, Courtney. so all right so you have oriented goals you have a belief system you have interesting extrinsic goals and now that's what global meaning is global meaning is comprised of those things now that's cool what does the religious system have to do this what is it how does religion play in this so i took a detour almost in my thesis about religious systems. So there's two big thinkers that I pulled on. Yeah. One is Ernest Becker. So Ernest Becker thought that religious systems were fundamentally a buffer against death anxiety. It was called terror management theory. And that really what we did is we developed these global meaning frameworks as a means of mitigating anxiety, the ultimate anxiety being death. Mm -hmm. And that we were like, oh shit, we're going to die. And it's like, we better come up with a whole heroic system to tell you how you ought to live that also tells you, hey, if you do these things then you won't really die and then you don't have to be scared about dying. Right. And there's a lot to it. Thinking about meaning system as a buffer against anxiety has is really strong in part because one you can literally look at people who have who have low meaning meaning in life and who've had their meaning violated and a whole bunch of other things and they get super anxious mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think part of that is because once you stop once you tell people where let's say so let's say i'm going to walk through this room right now i want to go to those stairs that's my goal mm-hmm. the only obstacle in my way is this table and some chairs and a light and whatever, right? And Jordan. I, I've done, and Jordan. Hey, <laughs> man. And I've defined potential obstacles. So I only have to be anxious about a handful of things. Right. But if I don't know where I'm going, yeah. if I might have to go in any direction at once, everything in this room is an obstacle. Everything is a potential obstacle. I'm anxious about every fucking thing that exists in this room. Right. So now you're overwhelmed right. because you have nothing. You don't know what you should do, what you can do, whatever's going to happen. You have to be prepared for everything all at once. Otherwise, you're screwed. And that's part of what it's doing. So one touch. This is a, such a cool study. They took what's the names? Of the, I should give these people credit. Tullet and Good in 2011 did a study where they looked at the anterior cingulate cortex which is a part of your brain that like lights up when you're distressed. It's like, oh, oh wow. sweet Jesus, please. Every mm-hmm. time you get distressed. So they took people and they had them do the Stroop task, which I'm sure most people have seen, especially if you did 101 psych. It's where they say a word, let's say the word is blue, but it's written in red. And you oh, have to say what the word is. Okay, yeah. You have to say what the word is and not what the color of it is, right? Yeah. And you're like, uh-huh. And so when people mess up into your single your cortex, bang, 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 it lights up. It's like, ah, and tells you when you made a mistake and people getting anxious about it. Now, what they did is they had a control group that just reflected on whatever they had for breakfast or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they had uh, two other groups. One was they had conscious primes for religious system. Their religious system. Yeah. They asked them to 
uh, pray or reflect on what religion meant in their lives or what their God did and mm-hmm. all this stuff, right? And those people, their anterior cingulate cortex lit up less when they made mistakes. So it was literally stopping them from being more anxious. Hmm. And if you took wow. the, and then the third group, yeah, it's so cool. And then in the third group, they unconsciously primed them. So they didn't let them know that they were priming them. Right. So they, they gave them a list of like four words and they were like, it's like whatever bunch of random words. And they're just, you got to put this in an order to make a sentence. And that's what we have to do before this thing. And they would have words like divine or spiritual and like things like this. And that oh, just wow. kind of like cue them a little bit. And those people, like, yeah, like, hey, think about your religious system. And those people, their interior cingulate cortex lit up less. Damn. So you don't even have to be consciously primed for your religious system to activate to prevent the amount of overwhelming anxiety that's coming your way. I think that's an industry pass. I think too, there's a there's a thing to highlight here is that what you're saying is that there's something in our brains that primes us to things that are religious like. Like divine like those words that, that it's like the brain has a biological system that is built around So it's a it is a Okay, so there's a there's a system. I forget what it's called exactly, but the idea of about what, what your brain is doing, right, mm-hmm. is is that there's a bunch of whole. It's a ton of different nodes. Right, there are these little concepts that exist everywhere, and it's a concept is simple. It's right. This mic is a concept. I think about this mic. I have a conception of what this mic is in my mind, but when I think about that, it's connected to all the things that are related to a mic in my mind. So it could be as concrete as a podcast, or recording equipment or mm-hmm. a laptop or you guys because you're here and then it can get more abstract maybe when i was young this is ridiculous <laughs> maybe somebody <laughs> like hit me in the head with a mic and so now when i think about mics i think about getting it in the head yeah. right that's called yeah. spread activation gotcha. so when one node in this networks activates it ripples outward and hits all these other nodes and yeah. all those get activated that's what priming is yeah is that you you Click on one node so that another one will be primed. Right? Yeah. Wake what, up. What, what, what I think of is like a highway. So it's like having like a, like a fast pass. Like in Illinois here, I pass, right? Mm-hmm. You're priming yourself so you can get through things faster. So by having those keywords, it then is like pre-paying those gates or something like that. So you just check those boxes quicker. Yeah. It's like bing, 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 bing. And you can get people to say what you want them to say oh. by priming them. So there's this one study where they, they had a whole list of words. And then they ended on either like tree or fingers or no, it was, it was like, it was like fern or fingers. And then you had to come up with a word next. Mm-hmm. Or what was it? I might be messing this up, but they basically got people to, oh man, I am messing this up. <laughs> what was it? How they do this? It was like maybe, I think maybe five words or something. And then they either said, they said palm. And I think in both word or in both streams of language. Mm-hmm. And then they were trying to get them to either say palm tree or like hand. Oh, gotcha. Right? Okay. And that, that if they put in cues like fingers or fern or whatever, then they could get them to relate to the specific type of palm they were talk they were trying to get them to talk about. Right. Yeah. And that's just proof that some proof that that's what's happening is that these concepts are all connected to each other. Yeah. And you can activate a whole bunch of them. And concepts beca- and then there's categories too, and a category is that thing under which there are a whole handful of concepts. Yeah. Right. So a dog is a category because there's a whole bunch of different kinds of dogs. Right. Right. A chihuahua and a pit bull are two different things. Yeah. So those are two different specific concepts. But even, (laughs) but what's interesting is, but there's also a concept of a dog. Yeah. And it's a, it is a 
concept under the category of animals and you have a yeah. concept. So what it is, what the difference is between a concept and category to me doesn't make much sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a little, it's a little convoluted. Yeah. I mean, I get what they're saying. It's it, but it really depends on where you're looking or how you're looking at it. Mm-hmm. So in that past example, how would that work with someone on one hand, that's like say an atheist. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for them. Uh, I don't, but no, it didn't work. It was only in believers. So the people that were, yeah. So the people, so that they filtered atheists, for belief. They had atheists there and then they gave them the same. Like, if they talked to an atheist and they're like, wow, think about God. And they were like, I don't know what. <laughs> so it, it didn't work for them. They had to believe in it in order for Got that. It. So what I would say is that that shows that you can't just be told about a religious system. If you believe in the religious system, so the religious belief, system acts belief as a buffer. is a huge prerequisite. Yeah. Basically. Right. So, so it's not that it's religion necessarily. It's like belief so whatever you believe in would it activate that same if your belief system i would say so now i'm gonna get off the path in some of the research but i would say no that's fine no i just have to warn the listener so i'm not sounding like i'm pulling this from the research research i'm saying this me i'm saying this not a bunch of professionals (laughs) So, so what i would say is that it probably depends on what the belief system actually says because if my belief system says like God has a plan for you, then my mistakes make sense in that context and I don't have to be so anxious about it because it's all part of God's plan. Right. But if my belief system is nihilistic and it says that everything doesn't matter and – or maybe I have worse. Maybe I have a negative belief system that's like if I fail, then I will be punished by some like tyrannical God. Mm-hmm. Then I could imagine that it doesn't help at all yeah. because now my belief system is like, oh, I just messed up in the Stroop task. I'm going to be smited. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that right. if that was the case, yeah. then your your what anxiety, the ACC lights up like crazy. Yeah. Right. So it depends. Okay. But then that you – so anyway, so that's what he thought about uh, – Becker, Ernst Becker thought about religious systems. Now – I think he's wrong because he kind of boiled it down to that one point and missed some stuff. One, the criticism I make in the thesis is that what happens is when you remove, when you have meaninglessness happen, when somebody get, loses their sense of belief or whatever, or belief shift, suicidal ideation increases. Mm-hmm. So if, if religious systems are a buffer against the fear of death, why is it that their removal makes people wish for death? You think they'd be more averted. They'd be right. more afraid of death. And instead, the opposite happens. They go, oh, screw it. Like, take me. <laughs> like, I'm done with this. Now, I think that's explainable. So I would actually, me and past Joe would actually disagree. And I was, Wow, yeah. you've, already, you've already formulated new theory. <laughs> right, I can argue for Becker's point. So what, what I would say is that is that it's that overwhelming problem so that you can't tell what it is you should do and all potential things you could do end up becoming so overwhelming that it's you're so anxious and distressed that you just can't deal with it anymore and then they they opt out Hmm. and that that's not quite the same thing but it still acts as a good segue to get into what peterson thinks so jordan peterson clinical psychologist u toronto he talks about religious systems in a different way they're actually pretty similar the two of them and peterson's conception includes the buffer against anxiety so that's why I think it's actually superior. So it adds on to this theory mm-hmm. and doesn't boil it down to one thing. Gotcha. So Peterson, first you have to understand about what the function of literature is. So what literature is, is essentially you look at the world and a whole bunch of things are happening in the world. 
And you want to tell a story. I could tell a story about what I ate for breakfast, right? And right. that's a simple thing. And it's like, oh, well, you know what? I put this in my eggs and it was really delicious. And that's really good information for you. And you're like, oh, I'll put that in my eggs next time. This sounds great. Let me try that. Mm-hmm. And so there's a perfect story. Easy. But what literature is doing is it's looking at – it's like it's looking at all the different problems that people are having in their life and it's abstracting them out and saying, okay, just like a value – is an abstraction. Uh, it's a goal that can exist in a handful of contexts. Literature is a means of behaving. Like the main character, maybe the hero's actions are a way of behaving in a handful of different contexts. It's an abstraction of life. And so Peterson thinks that religious systems are that same abstraction, that what what, what it is, what we should look at religious systems as, at, is as an abstraction of potential behaviors. And it's using characters to play the part of a value and then lets them act them out in the imagination so we could tell which ones should be superordinate Mm -hmm. and it's a mix it's like it's as if religious like really old religious systems are a mix between the objective world and the subjective world so imagine that you're a bunch of people who imagine you've just fallen in love you're walking down the street you're like oh oh sweet jesus my god she's beautiful and it just strikes you and you're like, I don't know what that was. And you're like, that's crazy. Is this me? Is this on me? Like if you're putting yourselves in the, in the feet of the ancients, they're like, what the hell was that? I've, what, I've, I don't know. No, I have no idea. No context for this. Yeah. I don't know what about the brain. Right. I don't know about psychology. Yeah. So I'm just like, I don't know what this was. That was crazy. And you go and you ask your friend like, dude, I don't know what it was, but I felt like I got struck. Like, have you felt that before? Is this me? Am I going crazy? And he goes, no, dude, I felt that too. And then suddenly you find out like 10 people have all found out that they've all been struck by someone, right? Yeah. And they're like, well, what's this about? It's like, well, was it that person? No, I'm talking about a different chick. I'm talking about a different chick. You're like, so it's not her. Yeah. It's got to be something in the world because it's not in all of us. And it's not in the individual other person. So there's it's some a shared f- commonality. There's a, just <laughs> like we would say that the shared, what is objectively true is, yeah. is those, are those things that seem to be consistent across a whole yes. multitude of subjective experiences. They say the same thing and they go, well, dang, that was crazy. What did it feel like? It was like getting struck by an arrow. Struck by an arrow. Well, there's some <laughs> force out there in the world that strikes us with arrows and makes us fall in love. Well, we got to define this thing. We got to come up with a name or whatever. Bam, well, Cupid. Right. Bang, Cupid. Yeah. They name it. They say, screw it. I don't know. Name that force. Yeah. So it's it's they think it's outside in the objective world when it's in reality, it's their shared psychological biological predisposition that creates that experience not the world outside themselves Hmm. but they were smart in how they figured out what it was in the objective world this turned out they were wrong because they they weren't quite there yet right Right. so they were geniuses but they just were geniuses in the ancient times so they didn't have the information to build on from now yeah so what that is is then that eros ends up being a representation of love as a value wow and then in the stories, cool. they mm-hmm. represent these values by a whole bunch of different gods. That's what a pantheon is. It's actually God of war. That yeah, is a value. Exactly. God of love. That is a value. It's God really neat. Or God of whatever. Really cool. So when me and Joe saw Jordan Peterson live for his book tour for the 12 rules of meaning, right? Or 12 rules of life. 12. Yeah. 12 rules of something. I can't remember what the last word is. But basically, like every city he went to, he like elaborated in a speech or like basically a live lecture of 
that chapter. Mm-hmm. And I don't exactly remember what it was, the specific chapter, but he gave this example about like thematic like danger. And so he, he told this awesome story about dragons being the ultimate caricature of what danger means for homo sapiens or at least ancient homo sapiens. So it's like, it's got sharp claws, like, like an eagle and it has, you know, it, it scales flies like, like a snake. Yeah. And, scales like and a snake. breathes and fire. Yeah, so right. It's like everything scary. Yeah. It's everything like, scary that so we cool. all associate with as so primordial cool. humans. Yeah. What's so cool about dragons is that they're real. It's, but they're real as a, as a, category of dangerous things yeah and so it's 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 as if the ancient people were like they were just trying to describe shit that's dangerous to them whether it was snakes which actually we co-evolved with and helped us have a visual acuity so if you had in the lower half of your visual field you're really good at sensing or uh, picking up on snake-like patterns so our it looks yeah and in yeah, fact that's fucking cool dude you know what's even crazier <laughs> you'll move if a snake bites at you and you didn't see it, you'll move faster than you'll even register that you saw it. What the? Fuck because is your that? body is so hardwired, has been so yeah, so hardwired, hardwired, so trained by snakes through our evolution for literally probably like a billion years of constant interaction with snakes that it's like just like breathing. You don't have to think about mm-hmm. your body. Just said, "Eh, we'll just think about we'll deal with snakes. You don't have to think about it." Context for that, which is really cool, and I had no idea this was a thing, but it's like. <laughs> priming (laughs) you know like like in basic training you're you're doing you know patrolling and doing your thing and you're you know looking eye level yep you know what i mean so you're you know you know scanning and uh, when we were there in fort benning georgia like this i don't know what the fuck it was but this big ass black snake comes slithering like through you know what i mean and like no one's looking like that but everyone at the same time goes fuck move and like we all jump and you just see this thing slithering yeah didn't realize that's what was happening but i was like yo that's that's there it is, right? right? There. Your body knows what to do before you do, yeah. which actually indicates because if we define belief as those things that you're acting upon, indicates why Sartre was wrong about being a blank slate, which is that you acted without even thinking that you were acting and you come prepackaged mm. with a set of beliefs. You're not a blank slate. Your biology has determined how you should act before least, you even came into being. Or at least right? 50% of it, right? Which is, which <laughs> might be what the, what, what religious systems are getting at when they say you come born with like God is imbued with you with some nature because you actually have it. You come, you don't come as a blank slate. Like yeah. your the entire evolutionary process has hooked you up with a handful of beliefs, a rudimentary belief system. Survival. I would, I would call them survival mechanisms that then become belief. Right. The moment, but I'm the moment that you act, the moment you act upon a thing, that's a belief. Got it. Okay. Right. So, I see. so when I drink water, feeling thirsty is a belief that, Drinking water will allow me to continue to survive and perpetuate. Yeah. The the ultimate super earned goal there that these things are in service of there is being survival, right? So a pantheon, like look at the ancient, was it the, yeah, the ancient Greeks, Zeus, right? Zeus is the God of gods. He's the ultimate super earned goal. So they're, they're, they have all these values. He's a combination of all the others. And they determined who the best one is, Right. So don't, when you do that, you say, if there's a competition between whatever Zeus represents and whatever Eros or whoever represents, then you sacrifice Eros for Zeus because that you can, you would rather get a higher goal than a lower one. And you can still later get the lower one in pursuit of the higher. Yeah. So that's what a religious system is, is that same process of ordering goals, higher or lower and superordinate or superordinate and subordinate 
creating values and having a whole belief system just in story done in story. Yeah. And then it gets refined over time. It's, it's constantly updating itself. Like you can even see that like carryovers from Egyptian mythology into Christianity because of how close yep. those historical overlaps happen. And then that gets taken over by the Romans at some point. Yeah. And then the Romans update and add their things on top of it. And it just keeps. Yeah. We, doing... we, we kind of like to think of like religious systems in or the ancient systems mm-hmm. as almost being like, Categorized in a nice little yes. box. Like, here are the Egyptians. Here are what they believe. Mm. And then you, you go shift you'll, one, one you'll box look, to another. Right. It's like, here are the Greeks, <laughs> and then here are the Romans, and then here are the Christians that came after them. It's like, they all believe different things, but that's not actually it. It's it's the keep playing out this combative system of which goal should go here, which goal mm-hmm. should go where, what are goals, how do we de- define this thing, what is this force outside myself. All this is just being figured out. And the Greeks were built on top of the Egyptians, and the Romans were built on top of the Greeks, and then the Christians were built on top of the well, rest of those. the, Jude- the <laughs> Judaic system, yes. along yeah. with influenced by the Greeks and the Romans. Yeah. Right. So, and there's a great example that me and you both saw in England of this when we went to Bath, mm-hmm. which is a old um, Roman town outside of London. And there's, it's called Bath because there are Roman baths there. <laughs> and there's a god there named Sulis Minerva. Now, Sulis and Minerva are. Two different gods. One oh. is Roman. One is the Saxons or Celts or whoever was there before. A pagan god of right, some sort. Some, yeah. Right. And they combined them. Now, if you think about a god as a being and that that's the ultimate being that you – that exists in the world and that you uh, worship – what possible sense does it say to, well, we'll just combine our gods? That makes no sense. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, here's red and here's blue, and let's just go, and then it'll be perfect. It's yeah. like, no, you lose. It's not the same thing anymore. It doesn't make any sense to like combine these two categories. But if you think about it as values yeah. that they're trying to define, then you recognize that one, that they can they're be abstractions on the world. Yeah. And they could, what it could be is that like the Romans come with, I forget, I think they had Minerva. They come with Minerva. Yeah. And they're right. like, hey, here's what we think about the world. We found this force, this value in the world. We're talking about it. And then they're like, well, oh, we have a name for that. We call it Sulis. And then you go, oh shit, we're talking about the same thing. So they just combine the names. Hmm. But it gains in that process because maybe you had a certain way of looking at this value and we had a certain way of looking at this value. Mm -hmm. And now by combining these things, by syncretizing them as a word, then we actually elaborate on the definition of whatever that God represented. So that's how cultures grow as they come into contact with each other. It's combative. It it reminds Mm -hmm. me of like, if you think of ideas as entities, and the entities themselves are not perfect. They're always work in progress. What combining those two is like a primitive way of saying, let's, these ideas seem similar and that they have certain amount of overlap. So they kind of, you know, it's like the idea of a, like a round, a round peg in a square hole kind of thing. But it's almost like one's an oval and one's like, you know, an ellipse. Yeah. Or, well, that's the same shit technically, but whatever. Like you get my point. Like yeah. they're, they're close enough. And so these primitive cultures that are now in contact with each other but it's like boom like we're just gonna let this like that also shows a within the geography of where those people live where the ideological overlap was like the venn diagram was like that's at the boundary point between those two cultures so it gets even more cool at that level because then you start thinking is like you know as farther that way like left or right I'm, I'm, that doesn't matter realistic but you know in this direction more people believed in sulis and in this direction people more believed in minerva and then all of a sudden it's like as the melting pot shifts, then you have intermingling and now these two entities start to become one. 
And that's how I kind of view ideas as these constant pushing back on each other and sees which one is more true. But then it's, it's if they are shared beliefs, then they just become the same entity to some degree. That's what's, that's what's so cool about shared beliefs is that it actually allows the other to mm-hmm. become part of the, the same, tribe. Yeah. Right. It brings people in because if you're trying to where before, I think an ancient, like really ancient, it was just family. It was like you, you and your brother. What's that? Uh, it was a Middle Eastern saying. Was my like, brother, me my, against my brother, me, my brother against my cousin, me, my brother, cousin against the stranger. Yes. And it's just this elaboration of who the in-group is. Yep. But what belief systems allow is that I could not know you. You could be from the other side of the world. We could have nothing in common except our same goal. The humanness. And in fact, <laughs> if you take human beings and one of the big hallmarks of, of uh, conflict resolution is you take two groups that hate each other and you put them together and then you give them a goal that they have to figure out right. and then they come together. And it's like, haha, that's what <laughs> we've been doing with religious systems since the beginning. Same problem. Is trying to posit a goal and then those people who want to get in on the goal all become part of the tribe until it expands and expands and expands. Right. And like to the point where Christianity got so big that it's like we can – they literally think that anybody in the world can become a Christian. Where for Judaism, you have to be born into the, in fact, I think your mother has to be Jewish. So you can have a Jewish father and you're no longer Jewish. So it's, so there's a hereditary thing there. So Christianity expanded it beyond that and said that anybody at all who holds these beliefs can now become a Christian and it blew up. Yeah. Of course it blew up because now anybody can join. Inclusive. Right. And like, okay. It's like the original, I don't know, original, but certainly hugely impactful inclusion, the idea of inclusion. right? Right. So that's how Peterson conceptualized it. So it's more than just here's something that we arbitrarily created, make ourselves feel better about dying. Yeah. It's that and it's evol- huge evolutionary systems. There's a functional element because we're ordering goals, right? So there's an actual if you believe this thing, then it will actually work better. And in fact, in an evolutionary context, if a species perpetuates and survives for a long period of time, you call them successful. That right. there, there's something true about the way that they're living, meaning that like if if a fish – if you find a fish or, or let's say a fossil of a fish and you see gills, you see the fossil of a gill, right. you go, okay, well, that thing was probably in the ocean. That feature that worked in the ocean is an indication of the environment that that species was in. Right. Right. So it indicates something true about the objective world if it works. Right. So the fact that religious systems continue to work, which is to say – allow us to perpetuate and survive indicates something true about the environment that we live in. So there's truth in religious systems. Hmm. Which makes sense. So this to me brings a question like, how does this explain something like the Holy War or something like that? We have these two really almost like parallel beliefs, but there's like just very minute differences and they just can't come like how all these other ones like came together, you know, like in Beth. Yeah, I guess that just raises that question. Part of it could be that they're they're so far the belief systems are so far apart that they can't syncretize. So imagine that I'm like my highest order goal is that we should I don't know let's say treat every but we every time we meet somebody we should say hello and it's like and be polite okay and then your highest superordinate goal is to slap everybody you meet (laughs) well you can't really those things don't work together they're antithetical enough. That it's one or the other. You just can't play it both ways. And that that could create conflict in religious systems. But there's also – I mean there's also a real political thing with like the crusade and stuff. So like 
Um, Muhammad initially, so the first, if I understand this correctly, I'm not that well versed in Islamic tradition, but so the first half of the Quran is really, really peaceful. And that's the initial religion he started. And then he came into Mecca and he was like, Hey, I really want to start this religion. This is all these good things I have to say. And that's really cool. And they kind of kicked him out. They're like, get the hell out of here. We don't want you here. And so he was pissed off and he went and he started an army and he took over Mecca. (laughs) (laughs) And so the second half of the Quran is all the war stories. So it really shifts gears halfway through. It goes from like religion of peace to like, here's the religion that existed within this wartime that Muhammad was, as he was expanding. And Islam, or or I should say like Muslim, it's not even, it it doesn't have to just be the belief system, but the belief system is part of it. They're like, they're, not differentiated. There's also a political thing. It was like, okay, now that we're a city state, it's a, a theocratic city state. Now we want to expand our city state. And so the moment you expand the state that is theocratic, then you're expanding the religion. And so this whole thing just continues to expand and expand and expand until it comes into Europe. And then the Pope at that time was like, no, what the hell is this? No. And then the crusades started. So the crusades were reactionary to the to the constant expansion of Islamic city states. It was a threat response. Yeah. That's how it began. Right. Okay. So it was just like it was it was political. Right. And and what we see what a nation is, as far as I can tell, is the agreement of those people to be on the same page with their values. They value the same things. And so we'll establish a boundary, a physical boundary around those people who I know are on the same page as me. Hmm. Okay. So by that, would it be fair to say like different beliefs or even meanings would like essentially create conflict? Is that fair to say? Or is that too much of a leap? It would depend on the degree to which they can coincide because okay. you could imagine that you're like, I really like kindness and you're like, I really like fairness. And then we talk, those aren't the same thing mm-hmm. and we can talk and we can be like, which one is more important? But they're not antithetical. Right. Like you can have kindness and you can have fairness at the same time. You might even say the fairness is kindness, right? right? So we might have different superordinate goal, higher ultimate superordinate goals, but we don't have to be in conflict. Mm. Or at least not conflict enough right. that we might debate, right. but not conflict enough that we have to go to war or something. Yeah. But if if I say that the ultimate superordinate goal is kindness and yours is warfare, is like domination on the battlefield. Well, we're definitely going to have problems <laughs> because you're going to come into this bitch and be like, I don't even want to yeah. cooperate with you. I want to fight, <laughs> which is something like what the Vikings had. There's a great show called Vinland Saga that is like all about Vikings. Mm-hmm. And that you can really see that that was kind of if they have the culture right. It's 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 not real. Right. right. But is that they really just valued war for itself, because when you died in the battle if you died heroically on the battlefield, that's how you went to Valhalla. Right. Like you go to heaven, like you're rewarded in the afterlife mm-hmm. by killing people. Yeah. <laughs> so of course they're going to have problems with a lot of people because their pursuit in life is to kill people. Right. So there's not much like rational debate going on there. <laughs> there's not much to discuss. Right. You're like, hold on, we can talk this out. And they're like, I'm not here to talk it out. Right. I'm here to kill you. Right. That's like, my I, goal. I only respect you if one of us is dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like, there's no conversation in that. There's right. none. There's not even, a, there's no room for that. So, yeah. so, of course, they were like pirates, like raping and pillaging their way across Europe mm-hmm. because that's what they, that's what they believed was the most important thing. Hmm. And so, 
that's a religious system. So there's good and bad religious systems and you have to judge them on their merits and compare them, whatever. But there's room still for them to grow and to talk with each other and figure out how to order all these goals and then move forward. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting parallels to that to uh, Genghis Khan and uh, how that whole shifted inside of his, the nomadic culture at least, you know, because it went from a point where they would just go through every city and just, burn it basically to the ground. Right. And you can find places where you there's legitimate ash where you can trace it back to the Mongol uh, sackings. Like today? Yeah, still to this day. Like they, they burn so much that you can find it in the yeah. like geological in record. Fact, you what can look the at the carbon footprint yeah, that's of humans I mean. yeah. and he goes, bloop, when Genghis Khan was around. What the fuck? <laughs> it just drops. That's crazy. He killed so many people. But the, there's a story. Sorry. Yeah, there's there's a story from, so I, I took a course on uh, Central Asian history. There's a story of Genghis Khan. He wasn't, he took over China and he's like, that's good enough. And then he sent some emissaries to the Middle East to trade with them. And I think it was, I guess, modern day Iran or something. Um, sent an emissary to meet with his emissary who's like, mm-hmm. let's open up this Silk Road or whatever and trade. Mm-hmm. And the guy was like, absolutely not. And he killed Kangas Khan's emissary and Kangas Khan went, I guess I'm taking over everything else. <laughs> <laughs> that was the only, I, only reason he probably kind of wanted to anyway. Cause yeah. it didn't, it was like warm breeze. Yeah. And now he tips, right. And he just took over the entirety of the middle East and moved all the way into Poland. Like he took over Europe, he like, was like, but he like came into Europe and like moved up and like Poland, Russia, Eastern Europe was all controlled by all because one dickhead <laughs> was yeah. like, you know what? I'm going to be the shitty son of some Persian empire or emperor or something. <laughs> and he's wrecked. It's he laid it, waste. Like Genghis That's Khan nice. is a super interesting character in history because the, the Mongol empire got so big that it started because they looked down upon the agricultural ruling classes yeah. of the time. They're, the nomadic lifestyle, they thought they were the strong, like they said, oh, look at you farmers. And they would just scoff at them basically. Right. And then by a show of force, they just took over everything because they innovated with horses and stuff like that. They just got wicked good at warfare. Yeah. yeah. And then it got to the point where the empire got so big and he had so many different sons that were all vying for power at, yeah. at some point. It broke up in like six or seven. Yeah. It wound up like breaking up into different empires and like one son was like the heir, but then the other people didn't respect him as the heir. Mm-hmm. And so then it got classic stories. Yeah. It's, it's really <laughs> weird because it's like almost something written out of like, like a drama because yeah and it was like one step away like if there wasn't drama happening at the home front they would have taken over the world and then it was because like Genghis Khan was dying so he recalled the army Hmm. and then like it stopped the inevitable like Europe was like oh no the Mongols are coming and then it's like Never mind. We'll be back. They got, they got <laughs> and they never got back. <laughs> and they never came back. And it's like, and he died. And then, the, and there's no real, like, st- like government structure. So like, it just ended. It just, like, everybody just had their own little slowly. governments. Yeah. And there was, like, seven kingdoms, kingdoms or something. And yeah. they kind of ran it themselves. And then slowly it dissipated. It had some of the first democracy, too, Actually, of the in, time period. In the Middle East, it ended because of the emergence of Islam. Because oh, it went, wow. Because then when that blew up, in part, because he took, he fought a ton of, like the Persians, I would say. Yeah, right. Or, but they were Muslims at the okay. time, so I guess they were competing. I, I can't quite remember. I wish I could remember it all. But anyway, they were all fighting. It was all crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's some really good historical books on like it's like Genghis Khan and how he built the modern world because a lot of the things that because he went on such a crazy like takeover spree, it like laid the groundwork for how a lot of the systems, at least in Europe, not Europe, yeah. mostly China. 
hmm. kind of still operate, and there's a lot of people that still respect him. It's really weird. Oh, he's weird. on their money, on Mongolian money. Yeah. I knew some guys in the Marine Corps. <laughs> it's yeah. like Hitler on Germany. <laughs> <laughs> like, what the oh, world? yeah, but like he probably killed a greater percentage of the world than Hitler did. Oh, yeah. And people, there's a lot of people that still respect him, though. It's oh, weird. Their whole, he's on their fucking money. <laughs> like, I, it was so funny because guys in the Marine Corps who they spent like a couple weeks or maybe it's like a month over in Mongolia, like training Mongolian soldiers and stuff. And they were like drinking this alcoholic milk that they have and yep. stuff. Wow. And, that's and cool. they were talking about how Genghis Khan is on their money. They like showed me. I was like, that's insane. <laughs> Genghis Khan was a maniac. But it's like, it's like long. It's so funny. It's because far enough we, removed. That yeah. They, and we have more sympathy for Genghis Khan than we do Hitler because it, like freedom of religion yeah, wasn't exactly. it wasn't racially based murder everybody right <laughs> at least it was inclusive yeah. <laughs> inclusive oh, murder i actually think that might be that might be part of why we have more sympathy also for the communists than we do for mm-hmm. hitler because the communists really were like this is like equality for everyone Mm. But it just turned out, and this is such a dark side to that, like, hopeful view, is that the fact that they thought everyone should be included allowed them to expand, which allowed them to kill more people. Oof. So it might mm. be their desire for inclusion that actually helped them become greater murderers than Hitler. That's terrifying. Dude, isn't that sick? <laughs> that's, like, oh that's a weird God, turn of dude. history. Yeah. It's like, oh, man. But well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, dude. I that's, guess yeah, that's, yeah, true. that's a really important point. Yeah. God. But we can move. And this topic I could talk about for like six hours yeah. and we wouldn't exhaust it. So we should probably move on. <laughs> yeah. Meander, I was going to say, I'm like, where were we with Joe's thesis? I, yeah. <laughs> We've established what a, what a global meaning system is, what a belief right. system is. We know what it is. Yeah. So now. It's like tangent. Right. I know. But it's cool because we got to elaborate. Yeah, so we got a framework for it. So like, cool. Ben thinks Vikings are awesome. Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so. We know what a belief system is, but we're limited, and so our conceptions of the world are limited. We can't know everything at once, and as a result, we move through the world with an inherently inadequate conception of that world. So, because I can't know everything, so eventually mm. you're going to run into something in your in your life that is actually antithetical to the things that you believe. So, if I believe, for example, wholeheartedly that let's say that my wife of 15 years is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. And then I find out she had an affair. Well, that's an app. That is something that exists in my world that I was ignorant of that proves wrong. The basis, one of my beliefs that I held that actually influenced my intrinsic goals, maybe to become closer to her or to rely on her or whatever. And my extrinsic goals, which is, would be like, have a career because maybe I'm relying on her to hold the house or, mm-hmm. or to make enough money that we, I can go and take risks with my career or something right. like that. Right. And now suddenly all of that collapses. Wow. So wow. every time you come into contact with new information, mm-hmm. you're appraising it. So this is situational meaning. So situational meaning is the situation you're in and how you make meaning out of it. And you appraise some new situation and it can be non-discrepant. So it totally makes sense. Like right now, nothing here is discrepant. This is totally non-discrepant. I, all this fits into my framework of the world. Right. Right. But if like you pulled out a gun and shot Jordan, I'd be like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> that's discrepant. Right now, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, suddenly some information is coming to my world that is antithetical to the beliefs that I held before. Right. And that cheating example is one of those things. Yeah. And so that's when your your meaning gets violated. There's a this is reminding me of a really specific example. Ironically, I think it was from Jordan Peterson, but that first breakup that everybody has. 
and how people react to that because yeah. it's the first time and you know you you wrap your worldview around this being and then all of a sudden it just like you just get shattered apart and then as much as you want to help that person like as a parent or a friend they have to put themselves back together yeah like there's no there's no one else that can now, do it i mean you can encourage them and help them and help them make sense of it and a, a right. lot of, I, I think that what's happening with extroverts is that they rely their means of oh this is going to be better to explain in contrast between the two okay extroverts and introverts mm-hmm I know how we talk about it as um, a battery. Generally, it's like extroverts get their energy; they refill their battery by talking with other people, and introverts refill their battery by being alone. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually wrong. It doesn't make much sense to me. What I think is happening there is really that they're offloading the amount of information that they've had been carrying. So imagine that you're got sixty pounds on your back, and by talking with people. You're just shoveling off 10 pounds at a time. Mm. Now, suddenly you have all this energy, but it's not because you've refilled your battery. It's because life just got lighter. You've unburdened <laughs> it's yourself. Like, it's like, this is just easier, right? Yeah. So what I think is happening there is that as we move out of the world, we accumulate novel information and it gets so much that we need a means of processing it. And introverts process it on their own. And then extroverts go out and talk with people and that allows them to process it, right? Mm. So it's, it's like social versus solitude. Yeah. And the extrovert, in this case, if their meaning is violated, would probably benefit a lot by being with other people talking about this thing that violated their meaning. Yeah. Makes sense. And it's also, this is a spectrum. I think it, it, it's also, we, we've put too much distinction between introvert, extrovert. I think it's closer to how like the big five categorizes it, mm-hmm. where it's a spectrum of, you know, extroversion, extroversion versus introversion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but they don't all... even make that definition in the big five. It's just extroversion. Really? And you're either 0% extroversion or 100%. Right. But I still think it's deeper than that. I, yeah. th- I think because like someone like me, I had always assumed I was an, an, a super introvert. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm doing a podcast. Right? right. And it's, and I think it's just the, the number of people that winds up being the, the drainer. Yeah. Like for me, it's be beyond five people or so. Yeah. It's yeah. like, then that gets too much for me. Right. Yeah. It's not that black and white. I mean, you see it a lot yeah. in creatives too. Like you yeah. have this super closed off musician, let's say, but they're amazing on stage yeah. in front of. Yeah, exactly. Of <laughs> and, you know, yeah. calling them like, oh, you're introverted. Like, right. am I? And nobody, right. and nobody is so introverted that they don't need no contact. Right. We're a social species. I'm sorry. You're yeah. stuck with it. Yeah. You're with the rest of us. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you're still human yeah. to some degree, no matter how robotic you are. Yeah. So it's, (laughs) so it's, so we can, we can measure global meaning violation with what's called a global meaning violation scale. So basically that just looks at your, those three facets, the belief, beliefs, uh, intrinsic and extrinsic goals. And you can tell which, with this questionnaire, to what degree those specific facets have been violated by some antithetical novel information that you've just appraised. And this plays out everywhere. So in, you can see this all over literature, philosophy, these things. So Leo Tolstoy wrote a book called uh, A Confession, which was an autobiography, very short, about his experience with basically 40 years of intense depression. Hmm. And what happened for him was that he was an or- kind of Russian Orthodox Christian at the beginning of the en- – when the enlightenment and the industrial revolution and everything really hit Russia and it just knocked his belief system completely out. And he spent 40 years basically trying not to kill himself. So as he was, as he was writing Anna Karenina and these 
world changing novels mm-hmm. that people like he, he even said he was like i'll be remembered like shakespeare and during this time when he knew that he would be remembered to that degree he was like he said like quote i didn't take a gun out with me when i went hunting for fear of that i would take that easy way out well wow. and it's like because how can you hold those paradoxes because it means nothing <laughs> because that, right yeah. because it means nothing to him right because because you make a book that changes the world but if you're nihilistic and nothing means anything, yeah. then who cares that your book changed the world? Because changing the world means nothing. It has no intrinsic value. None of this right. has any intrinsic value. The whole thing's a joke. And he even – he says also he, – he talks about he's like it's as if the entire world was just made to be a cruel joke. Because And you can imagine that because the one thing that everybody in the world is going to do, no matter who you are, when you're born, is you're going to suffer. At some point in your life, you're going to suffer. And if there's no meaning to that suffering, then that just means you exist and you're suffering and there's no point. Yeah. You so, exist to suffer. Right. So why continue living if there's no point in living and living is suffering? Jeez. And so Tolstoy <laughs> went down one. that hole. It's yeah. So I mean, it's a dark one for sure. But I think honestly, it's it's like a thing that we all have to confront. There's some, some truth to it for yeah, sure. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a part, I mean, me and Joe were just talking about this the other day where it's like we, we spend so much of our life especially being younger that like you'll never amount to things or, or you just berate ourselves with saying you're worthless or, or some degree right mm-hmm. like we've all been there i know we have and yeah. to, to any degree it's it's it could be worse than others obviously but besides the point in this context but yeah. you know i think it's important to say like we all have to kind of it's almost like you have to go down and then re-emerge from that that cycle of it yeah. so that you can create your own meeting for your life because we come prepackaged from like, well, well, yeah, that's part of this cycle. So we'll get to it. So we're in the, so it's global meaning, meaning violation, um, meaninglessness. That's where we're at in the stage, okay. but there's other stages after this. So that's where Tolstoy is at, for example. Now what happens when somebody's in that situation? Now it's Victor Frankl talked about this stage as something he called the existential vacuum. That is the lack of belief. He saw it a lot in Americans he said during his time, which was interesting, and this is like the 50s or 60s, mm-hmm. he thought it was because of two things. The traditional belief systems had collapsed. Now, what we mean by traditional is interesting in the way that he puts it. He says they're one part, they're one part instinct and one part like religious tradition. So the instinct, if we weren't conscious, then there's no question about whether or not what i'm doing is meaningful i'm not there to question this meaning i just go around and rely on my instincts and they take me they take me to water take me to food whatever and everything is meaningful because i'm just taking it at face value and it's good but once we became conscious we had the ability to question our own instincts and question the the viability the the meaning of our own instincts and that so that was robbed from us by becoming conscious and then he said that there's a religious traditions had been robbed from us by something like in post-enlightenment uh, hyper-rationality that the, in Nietzsche's words, like the sword that Christianity forged is the one that killed it. It's that we we were came, became so fixated on what truth was that we became, a, we honed it on the objective world and in the objective world, we could find no God. And so that thing that we discovered by honing our minds in Christianity in the West was revealed to us that Christianity made no sense and we cut ourselves off at the knees. Hmm. Hmm. And the whole, it's like, we just, 
we went, okay, here's the bottom. Here's the foundation of this building. Let's just remove this and see what happens. Hmm. Well, the building's not going to float. It, the whole thing starts to collapse. <laughs> yeah. And so Franco recognized that. Nietzsche recognized that. Jung recognized that. All these people were like, oh, shit. And that's why that's why Nietzsche came up with the Ubermensch, that we need to create our own ideals. Because he was like, otherwise, we're in free fall. We're screwed. Yeah. We're screwed. Well, and to, to Peterson's point, I, I haven't read enough of Nietzsche to really know only a little bit. But Peterson notes that Nietzsche thought that, well, once our values are gone, we're going to just oscillate between nihilism and totalitarianism because it's either nothing matters or everything or <laughs> or you just you just bind a belief system. Yeah. That's total. We know everything already. And now we just weed out the people oh, that don't geez. believe in it. And then he predicted that like 40 years between before the 20th century or whatever. And then it's like, bang, communism, totalitarianism, bang, nihilism, just back and forth and back and yeah. forth. And the two greatest world wars that have ever happened. So he, he predicted the second world war like long before it even occurred. Whoa. And because he got the philosophy right, <laughs> because he knew it was happening. Yeah. And he went, oh, shit. <laughs> so he tried to prevent that by creating the Ubermensch. But – it turns out you can't actually create your own values. I learned this from Peterson because if I wake up in the morning and I tell myself I'm going to work out today and that's my new value. My highest value today is that I'm going to work out and I'm going to get a six pack. It's going to be great. And then like four hours later, I'm drinking a beer and I'm eating a whole pack of Oreos. <laughs> it's like, good luck. Good luck just asserting upon yourself your values. And Jung went, oh shit, that is a real problem. And then he went back and tried to understand religious systems and he went, Oh, your values are actually pre-prescribed in part by your biology. And there's a whole thing to it. You can't really create your own values. You can only try to understand them and articulate them better, which is what religious systems are trying to do. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so that's a huge tangent. But so Frankel talked about meaning systems and existential, the existential vacuum. And he thought that people out of boredom and in search for meaning would start drinking, would start doing drugs. It's like, because shit, if I can do anything, I might as well do something, right? Why not yeah. pursue this thing? And I think about uh, when my favorite light, late night TV show host was Craig Ferguson. And Craig Ferguson was an alcoholic for years. And I love this story because he talked about how he was a crazy alcoholic in London. Mm. And he went, he was on Christmas Eve, he got blackout drunk at a bar passed out and like the upstairs of this bar my man (laughs) 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 that's great so he like wakes up and miserable hungover and he walks down the stairs and he goes and he thinks to himself i'm gonna kill myself he's like i can't do this anymore i'm gonna jump off the london bridge or whatever and kill myself and as he's walking out the bartender who he knew an irish guy was like hey merry christmas have a drink with me. And being an alcoholic goes, okay, sure. I'll, I'll kill myself after I take this drink. He ends up getting drunk. Gets so drunk that he doesn't kill himself. <laughs> he forgets to kill himself. And the point that Ferguson made when he told that story was that he said that he didn't have a drinking problem. He had a thinking problem. And that the alcohol was saving his life. It was preventing him from killing himself. Holy it was turning off his brain so that he could not logically come to the conclusion it was self-medication yeah and so when somebody we know that when somebody's falls into meaninglessness not only do they pursue alcohol and drugs mm-hmm. they also pursue, have a suicidal ideation so i think that the suicidal ideation is the thing that's being treated by the drugs it's the meaninglessness it allows them to survive so yeah. it, but keep in mind that it's not so in some sense it's an it's a uh, instrumental good in mm-hmm. that sense alcoholism in that case is actually 
if we're talking about life being good, then it's instrumentally good for perpetuating, in this case, Craig Ferguson's life. It allows right. him to continue to survive long enough, hopefully, and then eventually he did, find a more robust, better, more functional meaning system yeah. to operate in the place of alcohol. So when meaning systems collapse, less robust meaning systems take their place. Because this is a feature of the psychology, yeah. you can't just do away with it. You can just say, I believe in nothing. You have to believe in something. You're stuck with it in part because you're limited in this whole goal organizing thing, right? So you just adopt something that sucks in its place. Yeah. So, so Frankel's conception actually got tested and they found out that, that – the boredom, they looked at boredom and they looked at the search for meaning in life and they correlated with, and after the loss of meaning, with alcohol and drugs and whatever. And what they found was, well, the search for meaning wasn't found with these things. So they weren't looking for meaning exactly. They were just like, didn't know, they had no idea what to do. Mm-hmm. And so they just were like, I guess I'm drinking. And they found, they looked at, one study looked at adolescent um, male and female, so college age women and men. And the guys drank and did more illicit drugs. I think the women drank more. Oh, yeah. Okay, binge drinking. Women binge drink more, uh, but also are more promiscuous. Hmm. So it's like they look for ways of feeling good or feeling like they're pursuing something. Or It's like the surface level. But right, but it's really obvious, really surface level. doesn't go much farther than the once it's acquired. Yeah, once in I've, the moment. Right, once I've drank a bunch of alcohol – I've accomplished my goal. Right. But if I'm pursuing more time with friends, then I can drink alcohol, but that doesn't accomplish the more time, like more time with friends, right? right? It's not necessarily, maybe it's attributing to it, but I still have to continue to pursue that thing. So there's still meaning available to me in the pursuit of friends that wouldn't be available to me if I was just pursuing alcohol. Right. So, oh, what the hell? Sorry. So, okay, so meaning violation. That's what happens. That's what people do. They drink, whatever. They're suicidal ideation. Now, what do you do when you're in a state of meaninglessness? Albert Camus comes in. He's another French uh, existentialist. And he said that life is actually inherently absurd. And it's absurd because – so it's absurd not just because – not just for like the way we think of absurd like it's ridiculous, but it has to be that way. And it's absurd because you look at the limitations that we have and the limitations of rationality mm-hmm. and what we try to do to understand. It's like we're forced into trying to understand the world and make sense of the whole thing. But you look at the complexity of reality and it's so daunting that you're like, what the hell am I doing? This is a this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. It's like trying to move the ocean with a bucket. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what the So he yeah. looked at that and he went, This is absurd. This whole project is absurd. <laughs> He's like, so you're never going to find meaning in life. It's like, or at least not in some objective sense. It's right. an impossibility. The whole attempt is a joke. People so live- it's like, okay, well, how do you know that? Yeah. And then you go, oh shit. <laughs> it's like, ah, and then you have to start moving the ocean again. Yeah. And it's like, so he thought the whole thing was just absurd, was absurd. And he thought that there was a couple, there's a handful of different paths you could take. One was suicide, but suicide is a category. So there's physical suicide, which is you literally kill yourself because you can't deal with this absurdity. Mm. And the other was philosophical suicide. So you turn to a totalitarian ideology, you turn back to a religious system, and it's this like call to the nostalgic comfort um, that you had as a child in your ignorance. And in loco perennis is this ideology that you've adopted. 
And it's like, now you can just stop thinking or even acknowledging the reality of the situation you're in. And that that's philosophical suicide, that you've killed your mind in the attempt to feel comfort again. Wow. Then he had a third option. And this was the what he called the absurd hero. And that's the person who confidently recognizes this predicament that they're in. And then they pursue the things that they find subjectively meaningful in their life regardless. Oh, wow. And say, to hell with it. I don't care if it's if the whole thing is a ridiculous endeavor and life is a joke or whatever. I'm going to do this because I enjoy life for life's own sake. I'm going to do those things that I enjoy for life's own sake. And so he talked about in the book called The Myth of Sisyphus, he talked about Sisyphus being happy. Now, Sisyphus was the Greek, the, or maybe he's Roman, who rolled up, who was punished by the gods, and he had to roll a rock up a hill. Oh, and he keeps falling? I right, love this story. right yeah. every day. He's punished to roll a rock up a hill every day. And then at the end of the day, the rock would roll back down the hill. And gosh, shit, and then you have to start all over. But the absurd hero in Sisyphus is that he's happy regardless of the fact. And who cares if I have to wake up every day and roll a rock oh, up wow. this hill and it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. I'm doing it because God damn it, I want to. Yeah. And then that's... It's the reluctant hero. I right. mean, it really is that. Like, it's the person who's like, well, this is my burden to carry, so God damn it, then I might as well do it. Right. It's the same thing as the Morfati. It, it's the, you know, the not merely bearing what is necessary, but to love it. It's exactly yeah. the same right. thing. Love it. It's like, Just well, love it. I guess this is, it's like everyone has their cross to bear, right? To pull in the Christianity thread. Right. Like it's, we all have this thing that regardless of whether or not you discovered earlier or late, there's this thing that's calling your name or yeah. this thing that people respond to you and say, wow, you really know that, or you're good at that or whatever it is, right? right? There's these subtle things that people say to you and they come to you because they, they think you know whatever that is. Right. And it wouldn't even necessarily be. In Camus' perspective, that it's those people telling you that yeah, it doesn't have this, to be that. that is that yeah. is the, the reason to continue to do it because yeah. to hell with the prescription of other people telling you how yes how you should live. For Camus, it's I'm doing this because I want to do it. Right. Yeah. And it starts so, with the yeah. I first. Right. And there, he wrote a book called The Stranger that he made kind of an anti-hero, mm. but a um, absurd hero nonetheless mm-hmm. who does things for his own sake and he doesn't really follow the world's rules it's super angsty almost like teenager it's, it's funny it's Deadpool <laughs> before Deadpool yeah but he's too nihilistic I know <laughs> anyway so that's a so that's what he thought and that's like the reestablishment of meaning mm-hmm. reassertion of that meaning and so after it's been violated sorry let me just find my place yeah, so after it's been violated, you have to reestablish this meaning. And how would, so this leads me right to my research, which was can we measure people making meaning out of those situations that violated their meaning? And my advisor, Susan Gelman, her and two of her colleagues uh, wrote a paper that got published in Science. It was called How You Makes Meaning. And what they found is that uh, generic you, which is not and it's referring to an individual, so not you, Eric Wenzel, right? Or can you grab me a beer? Or can you record this podcast? It's referring to a general group of people. So it's when you go to the grocery store, you buy vegetables, right? I'm not talking about one person. I'm talking about what we all do when we go to the grocery store, right? It's it's a general conception, and th- what that's doing is that people are psychologically distancing themselves from a negative life experience, this thing that happened to them that violated their meaning, hypothetically or was at least negative enough that they still have emotional uh, reactions to it. They 
take themselves out of that situation as an individual, look at it as if from the general perspective to try to understand what anyone would do in this situation. And it helps them make sense or make meaning out of that situation. And that's what they found. So the more generic you somebody has, we thought, ah, that's an indication that they're trying to make meaning. And so we looked at that. And then we looked at, we looked at the, we used the global meaning violation scale to see the degree to which these situations that these people were in were violated. Mm-hmm. We wanted to see if they correlated. So just the degree to which your violation, your global meaning was violated, does that correlate with how much generic you, you actually use? So right. the more violated you were, the more meaning you have to make. Does that make sense? And then we looked at a military personnel, veterans and people who are still active, whatever, that we had them come up with two different things to write about. One, the first condition was a military-related condition. So they thought about a negative life experience that occurred that they consider connected to their military experience. And then their civilian-related experience. What happened in your civilian life when you weren't in the military anymore, before you went in the military, or maybe even when you were in the military, but it's not really related to your career, but it violated your sense of meaning and purpose in the world. It really messed Mm -hmm. with you. Is there going to be a difference between those things? Maybe it's harder to process military to to make meaning out of situations that occurred during your military life compared to your civilian life so we had them write about these two different conditions we measured the amount of generic you that they had and we had them take the global meaning violation scale and what we found was that all of our assumptions were wrong (laughs) (laughs) welcome to science everyone i know (laughs) so so uh globe the degree to which their global meaning was violated didn't correlate with with the amount of generic you they use so there and there was no difference between the two conditions but here's the interesting thing so here's what we did find and it wasn't predicted was that one the global meaning violation scale correlated across conditions mm. so it's almost as if if you've been your goal meaning has been violated once it seems to be happen again mm. now i think that what's going on there is that it's projection. It's like once your global meaning framework has been violated, then you're left with the experience of that, what it feels like to be, to be meaning for things to be meaningless. And then when another situation happens again, it's just like, well, I felt meaningless during this one too. And so maybe the cause is in the past, but you're projecting it onto this new situation. Yeah. Hmm. Or, you know, because you're just stuck in that state, right? That might not be the case. We'd have to look more into it, but that's one thing that happened. But what's even more interesting that happened is we looked at, we, kept track of who was active duty military. So these are full-time military personnel. So they live on base, potentially they work 40 hours a week. They probably deploy more often. They do more training exercises generally. And then we looked at what we called inactive, which was reservists in National Guard, which are like part-time military. They go in once a month for like two weeks and they do two weeks in the summer. They do deploy. Uh, Generally, it's less often, though sometimes it's been more often depending on when these things are happening. But they live at home, right? So they commute mm-hmm. to work. So they're not really as ensconced in the military culture, you might say, as the active duty. Now, inactive also included both. So people that were uh, both active and then maybe got out and then went to the reservists and okay. then retired that way. And other, which was which was people that we created that category in order to compensate for maybe potentially having foreign military take the survey. We didn't have foreign military take the survey. We had a bunch of people who were, didn't know what they were talking about, I guess. And they were a little confused. They put like veteran in there, like other veteran was their answer. Mm-hmm. And we're like, that tells me nothing. Yeah. But so, yeah. okay. So it's, this is in a perfect study, but so inactive is these people that generally are less 
less embedded in military culture. And then active duty are those that are more embedded in military right. culture. Either living on base or not on base. It's kind of like what I would right. It's it's, it. it's really it's full-time versus part-time. Yeah. Okay. And That's way to put it. these full-time types, the active duty types, were way less likely to use generic U than the inactive types. So it's as if they had a harder time hmm. making meaning out of their situations if they were active duty. That's interesting. So that, that indicates something about a difference in those two cultures yeah. and why it's making something difficult. Now, I, th I think that really what it is is that, that there's that, – that so much is happening. There's so many stressors in active duty military life that it's happening at a rate that's equal to or faster than your ability to process that information. Right. And so when something traumatic happens, you can't even process it because you've got all these other things you have to process and you just put it on the back burner and you you say, screw it. I'm going to, I've got all this other shit happening in my life. Mm -hmm. I need to deal with that right now. I can put off this traumatic event until later. Yeah. Or maybe it's even differences in the culture like we're tough marines we don't need to deal with these personal issues or whatever who knows we got to take another study yeah. but that's super interesting that that's what we found yeah, yeah. Oh, i would think too it's like less individualistic when you're active because it's right it's not net like nothing's really like about you yeah yeah specifically well, i mean like you know jordan I mean? yeah i think you have a really good lens into this since you were reserves mm -hmm. in, in army granted but yeah still it, it says a lot about what was going on i, I should say that <laughs> inactive active those categories concluded all branches okay cool yeah. yeah and you know in my experience it's like for the majority of the month i can essentially forget i was in the military essentially yeah you know what i mean i can just be like oh, i'm a civilian and then it's like okay here comes the third weekend of the month now <laughs> i'm military you know what i mean yeah so it's different and like if you're active you're mm -hmm. there all the time and it's not so much like and your break is when you come home right. for like big holidays or right. whatever and, your leave is yeah. <laughs> and i can think about like when i was in the marine corps right i was active and i can think about times like on a saturday when our staff sergeant would show up on the door and want to fuck with us and I'm like, it's that, so there, there's, you don't, it's not that, it's not even that you're working full time. It's you live yeah. that job. Yeah. That's your life. Yeah. And it's like, you don't get to escape. Yeah. You sign a contract. Well, maybe it's <laughs> because the you doesn't exist. In some sense, yes. And there, and for me, I mean, I was in a pretty toxic unit. Yeah, right. So it depends on the unit, especially. Right. So to what degree my perspective about that is influencing my reading of this is not clear right. but this is why you do these studies and, mm -hmm. and we're gonna do we want to do another one i should be having another meeting with um handful of people my advisor and the people that she did the initial her initial paper with they got published in science and talking about next steps so next steps would be something like larger pool of people to pull from mm -hmm. do away with the military or civilian condition who cares right instead focus on active versus inactive get rid of the other condition so that confused people don't mess up that statistic. It's just reservist <laughs> versus active. Right? Yeah. See how that condition is. Yeah. You know, play it out and really get a, and I, we, we looked at branches last time and there was major differences, significant really? differences between which branches had a harder time making meaning out of their situation. Wow. But it, we can't draw any conclusions because the number of people per branch it wasn't, wasn't enough. enough. Right. It was, yeah. it was too small of a sample size to really get So you just need clue. a bigger sample size to kind of get yeah. a clearer data or whatever the average is. Yeah. And that's what I'd like to do next time that's is cool. have a much larger amount of people mm -hmm. so that when we break it down by branch, we have enough in each branch to make some kind of conclusion. Right. Right. So that's next steps. And that's the cool. research that I spent a year doing. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's a really interesting one because the way I see it is, is it comes down to is like, 
the military itself, it starts out with legitimate indoctrination where you take boot camp and it tries to take everyone and says, you are all the same, right? You yeah. legitimately shave everyone's head. You all don't do that anymore. They don't do that anymore. Yep. That's like too harsh. <sighs> like they don't, I, I don't know the, it's like the details of it, but yeah, apparently they don't shave. Is that just, anymore. is that all branches? Yeah. I'd have to look into it more, but I remember. Dude. Wow. That's weird. Mm-hmm. That's lame. <laughs> yeah, right? But like, that's the whole point. Like it, the point is that everyone comes into it from a different, whatever, like station of life or a segment of life and the boot camp is there so that everyone gets on the same fucking page. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, it's like what you're saying. It's like th- that you who you are before going into the military doesn't matter anymore. And so then you have to create a new you that is the person that serves in the military. It's like less of a you, more of an us. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a collective. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's your job to to serve with your brothers in arms or sisters in arms, to be more correct. I I think it's really interesting in that sense because it's, I don't know if people, because the people who really believe it, you can tell that the sense of pride that's in their voice when they talk about the military and serving something bigger than themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And it goes to show that how much it matters for people as humans to serve something that is of a larger cause. Right. It provides meaning. Exactly. Like, like there's a, there, I mean, there's a common theme with all this stuff that there's a point where people have, it's being in service of others and however you define that. Yeah. Yeah. And why is that, why is that a human goal? Right. Like, like, why is that sound noble? Like no matter who you hear it from, it's like, everyone is like, gets behind it and says, yeah, that's great. You know, (laughs) you should take note that one, all the people we're talking about are people in, with a similar cultural background generally. Yeah. So it's, it's obviously the culture influences your meaning framework. Mm. I think the part of it is sort of like a rudimentary prepackaged meaning framework of how to behave in the world. Like here's Mm. the values that the West holds as self-evidently worthwhile. I mean, even the constitution says we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? So these are the things that we've agreed on that are obviously good for us. We're going to, we're going to make a nation based on these values, right? With those presumed to be worthwhile. It's really interesting. Like when you start thinking about like the lineage of these ideas, like we started with like Egyptian and prior and kind of worked our way through some of these things. It's like the American experiment, if that's you, probably the best way of describing it in this context is like the, the next evolution of what was being built upon through the enlightenment and things like that. And it was like all of these people who seem to believe in certain things with personal or civil liberty, I guess would be the best way of word choice. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, let's actually try this out for real. Instead of just, you know, yeah. letting Kings or, you know, other powers dictate futures for people. Let's just see if this actually works. Yeah. And somehow they were able to write a document that is probably, I mean, the fact that it still works through somewhat works through 300 years later is incredible. We're the longest lasting <laughs> uh, republic in history. The Roman republics came and went quicker than they multiple than ours. Yeah. So the, we've got something right. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't fallen apart yet. So, I mean, it's cool. And it's cool that you have next steps for your study. I mean, there's a lot of studies that people do for final projects in school and just it exists as what it is and then it just peters out and we'll try to get this published but i'll have to so if you read the thesis itself it's more in depth than i went here 
Mm-hmm. Actually, I think we might have gone more in depth on the religious stuff than we went here. Or yeah. I went in my thesis. Mm-hmm. But my thesis goes in depth in other places more more fully or whatever. Yeah. I mean, the whole point was to kind of let this thing breathe. And so you could elaborate on points that while you're writing it, you couldn't meander into the yeah. deep end, to, so right. to speak. And there's more free flow with this. Yeah. Like we can talk about King is gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what? what's cool that I pulled from it is that I feel like you were like determined to make this. Because I remember, and this is because, like, people who don't know you obviously wouldn't get this, right. obviously. But I remember, like, two years ago, you had said, like, oh, like, I had the, you know, when you first read Tolstoy. Yeah. And you were saying, like, what made you, brought you to read that? And you're like, you had, like, your nihilistic view yeah. at the time, like, being in the Marine Corps and stuff. And then it makes sense, like, where this thought process came from. Yeah. And, like, personally, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, because for those that don't know. You're driven to understand the world. Yeah, yeah. I have, like, a full on, what I call it, existentialist existential crisis there'll be a podcast on it we yeah it. oh yeah i talked about it with you yeah we did. um that basically led me down this path that led me to this thing so i really had the i'm so lucky to be have the opportunity that the research i did wasn't like i found an advisor who was like you should try something like this and i went oh okay mm-hmm. instead it was like i want to do something around about this and then i had an advisor that was like oh Wait, I've got, I did a little research that had something to do with that. Yep. And then it just worked out. And the yeah. whole thing, I remember the conversation, the first conversation we had about something we could do for these, she actually reached out to me because I was in her class, um, a developmental psychology class or a cognitive development class. And she's teaching. And I didn't know that she was like this huge, like name mm-hmm. <laughs> in psychology, yeah. like for reference, UM's, UM's, uh, Psych department is like I think it's not, it, it is it number it might one be number one in the world right now. Wow, no, it's it's, it's number maybe it's number five. I can't remember, but it, it's Still, way up there. It's yeah. like top top five in the world. Competitive, stupid amount of funding. Freaks of nature live there, yeah. right? So I didn't. I mean, I wasn't paying much attention. I just took this class and I was like, okay, cool. And then I like I went to her office hours one time and asked some questions and I was like, oh, that'd be a cool thesis idea. And she went, huh? And then she reached out to me on the I think either on email or on the messenger and like Canvas, which is like the the course guide thing that they set up. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, hey, you mentioned a thesis. We should have a meeting and talk about it if you're serious. And I was like, okay, cool. Why not? Mm-hmm. And then we talked and I was like bringing up all these different things. We were talking and she would bring up these things. It was like, it just, the whole thing. It was like, yeah. I came with a match and she had gasoline <laughs> and yeah. it was like, there goes the explosion. And it was like, okay, cool. That's I guess so we're cool. doing this. And then and I did it. And then it took like a year doing it. And I found out today, I was just telling you guys about this earlier. Mm-hmm. So they have designations. So it's for honors. And that means there's some requirements, which means that if you want honors at UM, you have to have a 3.4 and you have to do this thesis in the psych department. Mm-hmm. I don't know how other departments or colleges right. do it. But yeah, it depends on who it is. Or I don't know department. how engineering does their honors or what. But so I did that and you get a designation at the end of it. And so they emailed me with my designation and this thesis got with highest honors. So for those that don't know, most people who graduate from UM aren't going to have honors. Most people with honors aren't going to graduate with high honors, and most people with high honors aren't going to graduate with highest honors. And I got highest honors for this thesis. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> dude, I was freaking out, dude. I read that this morning. I was like, oh my god, I don't even know what to think. Like, is this real? This can't be real. I was like, this is a joke. Somebody's messing with me. They messed up. I mean, I, tricked I mean, them. the whole the whole through line of your experience at Michigan is literally the I tripped and fell in a pile of gold. Like, <laughs> dude, yeah, that's good. When I, when I, so when I got the 
my personal statement for the Beinecke scholarship was lit, started with that. I was with that analogy where I'm like, my life has been where it feels like I'm walking to this beautiful forest. I'm like, wow, it's gorgeous. Look at this path over this nice decline with the trees. And it's, and it's like that morning dew and the sun is like coming through the leaves and all this. And I'm walking, I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm prancing through the forest. And then I eat shit and I fall down the hill. Like, oh, Dana, oh! And I'm like hitting trees on the way down. Like, oh, fuck. And then, and then finally, and I land in a path. And I look up and there's a giant pile of gold. I go, oh, well, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, pretty cool i i mean the fact that we even have this thing to allow your your thesis to grow its own legs hopefully and yeah. and live on feeding curiosity because a lot of these things just kind of exist as one-off projects that exist on the you know whatever school you go to and forgotten about yeah and so you know i almost feel like the ch there's a chapter closed in my life at this point yeah you know it's like <laughs> here's add a lot here's like young chapter and i live in marine corps there's marine corps chapter and then there's like post-marine corps chapter mm -hmm. that led up to something like this and then it's like and it's kind of like been okay that's that point in my life i think it's kind of wrapped up and this is like i can move on to something new i don't know what that's gonna be i have no idea yeah, yeah. it'll be cool <laughs> you'll trip again go <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> trip again and then it'll be fine <laughs> Probably We're the most clumsy, successful person in history. Dude, yeah, dude. <laughs> I'm gonna have casts and broken bones and bruised eyes. Well, it's and all time this. for us to go drink more beer and make barbecue food because I'm hungry. Yes, I agree. Yeah, or I too am hungry. This is fun. I'm yeah. to bigger and better things. Oh, I should. I'll name all the books so we can put oh, them yeah, on the website. Existentialism is a Humanism by Sartre. The Myth of Sisyphus by Camus. You could read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He also wrote, I think it was Existentialism and Psychotherapy was another one. Mm -hmm. All those come into this thesis. What else? Is there anything else? Oh, The Birth and Death of Meaning by, by Ernest Becker and Maps of Meaning by Jordan Peterson all played a part in this. Boom. Thing. Bang, we'll put those on the website. Yeah, cool. I think a lot of them are already on the website to some degree, at least two of those. Cool, cool. So, <laughs> sweet. And I guess that's it for the first ever live podcast. Dude, this is so cool. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Feeding Curiosity. I hope you all learned something or at least got you thinking. If you want to dive in deeper, please head over to feedingcuriosity.net to find related links or just more podcasts and blogs that we've posted there. On top of this, please consider subscribing to our newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings on the website. Thank you all for joining me one more time, and we'll catch you all in the next episode.